Thank you, Steve. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, as we continue in our series. And this morning, looking at the intended experience of the Christian life. The intended experience of the Christian life. I'm going to begin reading to verse 1, just so we catch the context of our text this morning. We'll read all of chapter 1. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory." In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And then our text. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's ask the Lord to bless. Father, now we come to this, your word given by the Spirit to the apostle, to the church, to us, And we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see uh, these things that you've written for us. We might understand them and grasp them and embrace them, be transformed by them. And we give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've said, the intended, uh, the uh, title of my message this morning is the intended experience of the Christian life. Uh, The Christian life is... um, It has an intended experience, a a, a way that, that we are supposed to to live it, to walk in it. Uh, maybe it could illustrate by using the example of a marriage. You could define marriage in a variety of ways. Uh, you could, fi- could, de- could define a marriage as a legal contract, and it certainly is that. 
and it's a binding legal contract. Uh, you could also define marriage as a social arrangement where you agree that we're going to live together, we're going to have the same bed, same bank account, uh, we're going to share our life together, for better or for worse. Uh, it's a social agreement. But marriage is not just a legal contract and a social, a social agreement. Marriage has an intended experience. Uh, the intended experience of marriage is companionship and sexual intimacy, uh, the mutual comfort and support that you share as you go through the trials of life. And it is the experience of marriage that determines the health and vibrancy of the marriage. There are many people who are legally married and, and are still in the social arrangement, but not experiencing the intended experience, the intimacy, the companionship, the joy um, of that relationship. Well, what is true for a marriage is also true for the Christian life. Uh, there is a legal aspect to the Christian life. Uh, the words that we read in the first part of chapter 1, chosen and justified and adopted and redeemed and heirs, those are all legal terms, legal concepts, uh, legal realities in the court of heaven. And there's a social arrangement uh, to the Christian life. Uh, when you become a Christian, you are united to Jesus Christ, and you are brought into the family of God and into the, into the church of God. And Paul's going to talk in chapters 3 and following about what those social arrangements should look like. But there's also an intended experience of the Christian life, and that's what Paul speaks of in our text this morning. He prays that the believers here in Ephesus and the church of that day and ours would experientially know the reality of God, so that they might experientially know the, the hope that they have been called to, the riches that have been given to them, and the power that is at work for them. That's the intended experience of the Christian life. And uh, just as in marriages, uh, so too in the Christian life, it is, it is in this area the intended experience where Christians and marriages differ. Everything that Paul's been talking about so far in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is, uh, it's true of every believer. Every believer has these things in common and in equal measure. No one is more elect or more redeemed than, other, than someone else. We've all been predestined for, uh, for adoption. Uh, we've been redeemed through the blood of Christ. We're all the recipients of an inheritance, all sealed by the Holy Spirit. We all share those things together in common and in equal measure. So why do some Christians seem to be just um, more Christian? Why, why do some people just seem more full of the joy of the Lord? Some people just seem more genuinely godly and, and loving and generous and humble. Uh, I wonder if you've ever had the experience of, of talking with someone, a, a fellow Christian, and you find that they are just so full of the joy of the Lord. They're so full of uh, the Word of God and confidence in God um, that by the time you get done with the conversation, you question whether you're a Christian, uh, whether you're saved at all. I mean, you, they just seem to be so far ahead of you in the experience of the Christian life. Well, in our text this morning, we see that, um, yes, the blessings are equally given to all, but... There's a discrepancy when it comes to the experience of those blessings. And, and Paul is praying that the, that, that the, the uh, Christians might experience those blessings because that's what makes the difference in the Christian life. Uh, you can illustrate this easily by thinking of uh, David and Goliath. Boys and girls, if you remember the story of David and Goliath. 
Uh, the question is, why did young uh, David want to, choose to, go and fight this mighty warrior when the entire army of Israel, all these adult men, were terrified of Goliath? Well, what's going on? They're all professing believers, right? They're all sons of Abraham. They're all the recipients of the covenant promises. They all would say they believe that God is mighty. They're aware of God's glory. But the reality is they, they don't experience those truths in the same way. They don't experience those truths to the same degree. So while the, the men of Israel shrunk back in fear because of the size of Goliath, David runs forward in faith because of the size of his God. It makes all the difference. David has the spirit of wisdom and revelation, which gave him a functioning knowledge, an experiential grasp of the reality of his God. And that made the difference. This is what Paul prays for us, uh, for the church in Ephesus and for us today. Just two points this morning. First, Paul's commendation and then his supplication, what he, what he asks for. The commendation we find in verse 15, uh, uh, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul is clearly delighted uh, with what's happening in Ephesus. Remember, he had been the pastor there for three years. Uh, these people had come to faith under his uh, tutelage, his discipleship, and his teaching. And Paul is uh, just rejoicing to hear about their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Because if you had to sort of boil down the Christian life for the Apostle Paul, that would be it, right? Galatians 5, 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith that is empowering love. And that's what's happening in the church in Ephesus. Of course, there is a way of believing in Jesus that does not empower love. There's a way of believing in Jesus that, that um, doesn't, it doesn't move you. It doesn't, it doesn't give you new abilities. Uh, maybe you're there this morning. You believe in Jesus, but you're just stuck in your hurt feelings or your hard circumstances. Maybe you're just stuck in your offended pride. And you know you're stuck. And you, and, you, and you want to get unstuck. You, you want to love in a different way and forgive in a different way and, and rise above the hard circumstances of your life. You, you, you wish you had that ability. Well, um, Paul is praying exactly for the thing that we need. Um, he's praying this morning for the experience of God, the knowledge of God in an experiential way that actually does empower. For a faith, you see, that is able to empower us to live uh, in a new way. So Paul is thankful for the, what's going on in Ephesus, but he asks God for more. Verse 17, he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. As a critically important lesson here or principle for Christian growth and transformation. If, um, if you would ask most Christians, what do you need to do to grow as a Christian? They would probably talk about adding things onto their life. So I need to be more serious. I need more theology. I need more morality. I need more uh, devotions, more emotional uh, experiences. Uh, but transformation and growth in the Christian life 
do not happen by adding things on, things that we don't currently have, but by going deeper into the, the things that we already do have, by just growing deeper into that. Paul's, you notice, you see, he's not praying that the church would receive these spiritual blessings. He's already given thanks because they have them. What he's praying is that they'll experience them. He wants them to have an experiential grasp of these truths. So they'll have a functioning knowledge of their God and a deep confidence concerning uh, God's call on their life. And they'll be convinced of God's great power, have an experience, experience of God's great power towards those who believe. Now, it's, it's uh, worth noting that Paul could have prayed many different things for these believers. After all, they are uh, a small, struggling church in a vast, pagan, persecuting world. Uh, so they're undoubtedly facing opposition and persecution at some level. Some had lost their jobs because of their faith. Some had lost their families because of their faith. Some were in really strained marriages now because they had come to faith and their spouse had not. Uh, undoubtedly, there are some in the congregation who are sick, maybe some on death's door. If Paul had asked for prayer requests from the church of Ephesus, those are the things that would have been on the list. And yet none of them make it onto Paul's list. I think it's worth asking why not. And the answer is because, you see, it's not that those things are not important or not worthy of prayer. They, of course they are. We're to pray in all, about all things. But you see, they're all secondary things. They're not primary things. They're all secondary. You see, Paul prays for the primary things, the fundamental things, the foundational things, the things that will enable them to face whatever the reality of their life is with an experience of God that, that motivates and, and empowers joy and love and peace, you see? So he's praying for the things that will give them the ability to face every manner of hardship and endure any sort of persecution. What do they need to know foundationally to equip them to be able to do that? And the answer is they need to know God. They need to experientially know God and all the blessings they have in Jesus Christ. And so that's what he prays for. He prays in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ might give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He's praying that they'll have a deeper, richer, fuller understanding of God. I just wonder how often do you pray for that? We got a lot of things to pray for. But how often do you just pray, God, I, I need to know you experientially. I need to know you in a foundational way so that it transforms how I think and how I feel and how I live. Remember, that, that's what distinguished David from the entire uh, Israelite army. That's what distinguishes between Christians. As we read in Daniel 11, verse 32, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. That's in the context of persecution. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Everybody else is panicking or struggling. D.A. Carson writes this, this is the urgent need of the church. 
Some say the church's great need is to get involved in public policy. To others, what we need is a stronger emphasis on mission or greater effort and zeal among believers. We need better preaching and better worship, more Bible study, greater purity. Clearly, all of these things are important. But there is a sense in which these things are merely symptomatic of a far more serious lack. The one thing we most urgently need is a deeper knowledge of God. I think that's exactly right. Well, the good news, friends, is that that's exactly why the Holy Spirit's been given. That's exactly why the Spirit has come. He is the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Uh, The Spirit, you see, takes the revealed truths of God, takes the Word of God, and He opens the eyes, the spiritual eyes of sinners, so that they can receive it, they can see it. Remember, uh, the Bible says that um, the, the... to the, unnat- to, the, uh, to the natural man, the things of God are foolishness. He cannot understand the things of God. The God of this age has blinded the minds of uh, the natural man. And so he can, he can read the Bible. He can hear about the gospel. It just sounds strange and foolish. It doesn't make sense. But when the Spirit comes and the lights go on, then suddenly this message becomes a message that is necessary and wonderful. And, and that the sinner is able to, to come to repentance and faith as they, as they understand the reality of God and the truth about judgment and the necessity for a Savior. Well, the, the Spirit that first opens your eyes is the Spirit that continues that ministry in the life of Christians. The Spirit doesn't stop at our conversion, but continues to enlighten the eyes of the hearts of God's children, leading them into an ever-deepening understanding and experience of God's revealed truth. So we're not talking about some you know, mystical, um, far-off uh, you know, experience of spiritual things in a general, vague way. What Paul is praying is that the Spirit of, that gave this word will give wisdom and, revel- and, and illumination, we could use that word, to God's people, so they get it. So we receive it and, and, and know it and experience. This is my God it's talking about. This is the salvation that I've received. These are the truths that I can stand on. That's what the Spirit does. Ian Hamilton says, the reason the Holy Spirit has come into our lives is to bring us into an ever deeper knowledge and experience of the God of our salvation. And so that's what Paul prays for. And he prays that the Spirit would do specifically three things or, or give three gifts as he opens the eyes of their heart. That he would, the Spirit would open the eyes of their heart so that they might know the hope to which they've been called, the riches of God's glorious inheritance, and the power, the greatness of God's power that at work in their life. And let's just go through those. First, the hope to which they've been called. This is... It's not what it might sound uh, like to you. Biblical hope is not a feeling. A biblical hope is a fact, an objective fact. You see, so what Paul is praying is that the Holy Spirit would help people understand that their destiny and identity is based on an objective act of God, which is God's call. God's call is His eternal, effective decree, which Paul's talked about in verses um, in the first part of this chapter. 
And every Christian, you see, then is a Christian by the sovereign call of God, and that sovereign call is to something. It's to an eternal inheritance and glory. The Bible will talk about this in different ways. Where it'll uh, Romans chapter one, we read it earlier in the service. Called to be saints. Why are you a saint? Because before the foundation of the world, God called you to be a saint. Romans uh, one verse seven, called to belong to Jesus. Why do you belong to Jesus? Because God called you to belong to Jesus, and He's called you to hope. Not to a feeling, but he's called you to, if, to, if you just thought about uh, eternal glory in the new heaven and the new earth with Jesus Christ, you just write hope over that, circle it, that's what Paul is praying that you might get. You might understand that that reality is absolutely yours because God has determined to make it yours. It's, it's like, uh, boys and girls, if... And mom and dad, mom and dad uh, said, we're going to go on vacation. Uh, it's going to be, you know, six months from now, which seems like forever. But this is what we're going to do. And it would be your absolute most favorite place in the whole world. And, um, and on, on hard, bad days in the middle of, you know, March, when it's just rainy and miserable and cold and gray, um, mom and dad come and say, hey, I know it's not a very nice day outside, but remember going to be just two more months, and we're going to be right in paradise. Remember? Oh, yeah, I remember. Well, that's exactly how Paul, uh, what he's praying for, that, that in the midst of the heartaches and hardships of life, we know our hope. We're convinced of it. We're delighted with it. We're excited about it. So that that hope becomes an anchor for the soul, Hebrews chapter 9. That hope causes us to rejoice, Romans 12 verse 3. And that hope makes us bold. We've got nothing to lose. Like David. 2 Corinthians 3 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. That's what Paul's praying for. He's praying that the God's people would have a settled, ever-deepening conviction that God has sovereignly purposed my eternal glory in a new heaven and a new earth with Jesus Christ. He's determined to give me the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that's the second thing, of course. The riches of his glorious inheritance. I love how Paul, when he thought about the Christian life, he thought about wealth. He thought about riches. Riches now and the no mind can conceive riches of eternal glory. In chapter 2 of this, of, of this book, chapter 2, two verse 7, uh, Paul says, so that in the coming ages he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's how Paul thinks of heaven. And Paul's prayer is that God's children, his adopted children, might know their riches. That we have an an experience of vast wealth in Jesus. Ellen Alda once said, you don't need to be rich and famous to be happy. You just need to be rich. Well, if that's true, we have every reason for happiness. 
We're, we're, we're vastly, vastly wealthy. We, we are heirs to more glory and honor and joy than angels will ever know. We are, well, it's beyond what the human mind can conceive, Rich. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want, we shall lack nothing. Goodness and mercy will follow us. The goodness and mercy of an omnipotent Heavenly Father will follow us all the days of our life, and we will dwell in His house forever. And all of His blessings are ours. And no one can take them away. I uh, read an article, oh, I don't know, half a year ago now, Shaquille O'Neal was talking about how his kids, I think he has five or six, uh, his kids would be saying, Dad, let's buy this, let's buy that. And when he says no, they'd say, well, come, come on, Dad, we're rich. And Shaquille's answer was, uh, you're not rich, I'm rich. <laughs> well, that's probably good wisdom, right, for Shaquille O'Neal as a father. But that is not how our Father talks. Our Father, you see, pours out all of His riches on us. Come into the kingdom that I have prepared for you. Come in. Enjoy it. All my riches are yours. All the love and the grace and the glory and the honor and the kindness of God are yours forever, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Enjoy it. Receive it. Embrace it. Believe it. That's what Paul's praying for. And then thirdly, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Paul believed that the Christian life should be an experience of power, divine power. Now that um, doesn't mean that it's not also an experience of weakness. Uh, Paul talks about his, the weakness, right? The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. Wretched man that I am. Talks about his weakness in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he's got this uh, thorn in the flesh. And, um, and he asked God to take it away. God says, no, my grace is sufficient. So Paul says, I'll boast all the more in my weakness then. So the Christian life is an experience of weakness, but in the context of that weakness, it's an experience of divine power. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Well, what kind of power is he talking about? He's talking about the power. You see that uh, specifically in Ephesus, there's lots of talk about uh, magic and, and the spiritual world and, and, and engaging uh, spiritual forces to be at work to either bless you or curse your enemies. And uh, that's sort of the spiritual milieu, the, uh, the, the soup that God's people are in. And Paul says, let me, Christian, understand that you belong to a vastly greater power than anything the pagans in Ephesus are talking about. And that power is at work, not just in you, but towards you, the immeasurable greatness of His power toward you. And so it's power to stand against the onslaught of the uh, spiritual enemies of our soul, the world and the flesh and the devil. Let me just ask you, when you think back over your Christian life, do you ever marvel that you're still a Christian? Do you have a sense of, of the, the various times when you could have easily fallen away? How many times you could have easily shipwrecked your faith? How many times maybe that you were tempted just to give it all up? 
It didn't work. You didn't care. Sin was too attractive. Why are you still standing? Why are you still here? And the answer is because of the power of God. The power of God. It's not because of anything in you or me. We're no match for the devil. We're no match for the world and the flesh. We're weak, astonishingly so, in and of ourselves. But there is a power at work within us and towards us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says, is at work in you. Verse 20, the same power that belongs to Jesus and the right hand of God when he says all authority and power have been given unto me, that very power is exercised towards us who believe. And that is the power, friends, that that ensures that those God has called in Romans chapter 8, he's called and he's justified, but every single person that God's called, he will also what? Glorify everyone. How's that possible? Because the, you see, the, the sovereign power that called them is the sovereign power that goes with them and, and holds them until that sovereign power finally presents them without spot and, without, and with great joy in the presence of God. That is the power at work in those who believe. And nothing can separate you from that love. And no one can take you out of his hand. And Paul prays that we would experience it, that we would know it, that we'd experience the power to resist the flesh and the power to believe in the, in the greatness of our God and persevere in the face of persecution and trial. It's like our testimony would be then like the people of old in Psalm 124 where after a time of trial, they said this, if, it, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel now say, if the Lord had not been on our side, then they would have swallowed us up alive when people rose up against us, when their anger was kindled against us. But our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen? Our help is in the name of the Lord. Not only does God's great power, you see, dwell within us by the Holy Spirit, but Jesus Christ himself, King of kings, is at the right hand of God and reigns over everything for his church. All of God's authority, all of God's omnipotent power is mediated through Jesus for you. That's an incredible thought. All the power of God is exercised for your preservation, for your transformation. But Paul says, and we'll wrap with this, it's not just enough to believe it. Paul prays that we'll experience it. You see, Paul is not looking for orthodox believers. He's looking for transformed ones. People who experience these things to be true and are transformed by that experience. I think it's something, uh, it's a good word for us that we so easily believe and yet find ourselves struggling and don't quite know why. We sense we need to change, we've tried to change, but it doesn't really work. And we can question, what's happening? Has God abandoned us? Is, are, are the promises void? Do they not really work? Is there some principle I haven't understood, some technique I haven't tried? No, none of those things are true. If you believe in Jesus Christ, everything that Paul says in the first part of chapter 1 belongs to you. 
You've received every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. And the, the way to transformation is to just go deep into those truths. And the way you go deep into those truths is to do exactly what Paul does. Pray. Pray. Pray for these foundational things. Pray this. God, open the eyes of my heart that I might have a knowledge of you and specifically a knowledge of what you've done for me in Jesus Christ so that that becomes the defining reality of my life. Not my past, not my fears, not my abilities, not my failures, but that the reality of what you've done for me in Jesus Christ becomes the defining truth of my life. And that I know the hope to which you've called me. And I, I am eager for the riches you've prepared for me. And I'm resting in the power that you've promised to work in me. And as you pray then, open your Bible. Not as a, a technique of doing devotions. Open your Bible because the spirit of wisdom and revelation wrote it. And this is what the spirit of wisdom and revelation will take and use in your life. There is a power in the word of God. As the spirit takes that word and you get to know David's God and you get to know Daniel's God. You get to know the God of Paul, the God of Peter, the God of all the saints. And that God increasingly becomes a God that you know experientially. And so open your Bible. Begin a reading plan. Some of you are thinking, I know, but it's, it's past January 1. I can't start an annual reading plan. Let it go. It's America. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> Just start. Just open your Bible. And open your Bible with that prayer. God, I want the spirit of wisdom and revelation to open my eyes so that I see, I know, I grasp. And watch God transform your life. Rick Phillips says this, we have every reason to pray to God in response to the sovereign grace he has abundantly given. We have every need to pray because we need the Holy Spirit in every aspect of our life. We have every encouragement to pray because of God's favor to us in Jesus. And we have every incentive to pray because it is Jesus our Savior, our gentle shepherd, our triumphant King, whom God has established over all things for our spiritual blessing to the glory of his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. It's a word we really needed to hear. Lord, some of us feel so discouraged in our Christian life. And I pray, Lord, that this word would remind them of the great blessings that they have in Jesus. The blessings that cannot be taken away. And blessings, Lord, that you invite us to dive into, to dig into, to wrap around our weak and weary souls. And Father, I pray that you would bless us as a church with the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we are hungry to know God. We're hungry, Lord, to know these truths in an experiential way that produces faith, empowering love, that gives us the ability to endure heartache and hardships. That gives us, Lord, true joy and peace as we walk this pilgrim road in a great eager anticipation for what is yet to come. Oh, Father, please, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who reigns at the right hand of God and intercedes for us, it is in his name that we pray. Amen.
Let's sing a hymn together about what God has prepared for us. In the new heaven and earth, there is a higher throne. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.